Good morning, Woodland Hills. All right, all right. You, you know it's summertime, and you know that you've had a gospel worship service when the preacher gets up and he's all sweaty. Yes, the anointing flows. Hallelujah. Get a hanky out and feel like a real preacher for once. Glory, glory, glory. Hey, you know, uh, last night we had a couple people up from Chicago, uh, po- podcasters, podrishners, we call them, uh, and came up, and, and almost every weekend we've got folks that are visiting here from out of state. Just wondering, any folks here from out of state? Just raise your hand. I'd like to get some wonderful folks up here. Uh, great. Anyone else? Look around. Give them a hand. Good to have you guys. Are, are you the folks uh, uh, coming up here for a birthday present or something? That's your birthday present. <laughs> this is her birthday present. She gets to go. And, and, and where are you from? Madison. Well, praise God. Uh, Wonderful. We're reaching cheeseheads. <laughs> all right, good. Praise God. Well, good. It's, it's not football season, so it's all safe. All right. Well, we are in. I'm Greg. Uh, I teach here at Woodland, and um, we're in the middle of a, a mini series we're doing here called Creation Matters because creation does matters, and we're talking about creation matters, and so it's creation matters. Uh, last week, you may recall, if you were here, and if you weren't here, you'll learn it for the first time, but uh, I made the case, uh, we have biblical reasons for seeing the days of Genesis 1 as non-literal, not 24-hour days. If you weren't here, I encourage you to get that message. Um, and then we, we looked at um, uh, the uh, creation hymns in the surrounding area, it's called the ancient Near East, and when you look at the, uh, or interpret the Genesis uh, one record, in light of these other records, some things become clear, uh, especially about the role that these creation stories, these actually creation uh, poems is what they were, the role that they played in that culture. And it wasn't to satisfy anything like a scientific curiosity. That's just not what they were about. Uh, rather, these stories were about answering questions like, who are we? And what are we called to do? And who do we worship? And who do we look to for protection? That's the role they played. And uh, when you interpret Genesis 1 in that light, it becomes very clear that there's no possible incompatibility between that inspired account and anything that science would say. Whether it's about the Big Bang or evolution theory or Heisenberg's uncertainty principle or whatever, there's no possible incompatibility there. Now, folks here at Woodland Hills, this isn't a doctrine. I'm just kind of sharing my perspective on stuff. But I, I am passionate about it to the point at least where folks know that that option is available, whether you hold it or not, so that when you encounter people for whom this is an issue, and it is for a lot of people, they think that coming into the kingdom means you have to accept that the earth is 10,000 years old, and a lot of folks just can't do that. Um, They can offer them this option. We don't want any unnecessary obstacles to bar people from coming into the life-giving, transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Uh, Or to to keep people from walking away from it, because that happens too. It happened to me as a young man. Took one class and biology and came to the conclusion that there's something true to evolutionary theory, and I thought that meant I had to reject the Bible and all of everything else and went through nine months of misery that was unnecessary. So, so just have that in your resource box to help folks out with. Now, what I want to do this morning is to uh, ask the question, or look at the, the passage that talks about human beings being made in the image of God. And I want to ask the question, what does that mean, human beings made in the image of God? So we're entitling this message, Image That. Image That. Uh, and you'll see why here in a moment. Here's what it says in Genesis 1. It says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. And there's several different opinions about what the first person plural there is about, but that's not what I want to get into here this morning. And he says, Let them have dominion 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I I just think it's so, so clear that this word uh, here in Genesis is is revelatory. It's inspired. Uh, It's got a power to it that uh, it's just not of a human invention. I pray, Lord, that, that as this word goes forth here this morning, you would infuse it with your authority to accomplish all that you will, way beyond what human words could of themselves accomplish. I pray, Lord, that the beauty and the power and the magnificence and the awesomeness of this truth that we're made in the image of God, I pray, Lord, that would go into our brains and explode it and into our hearts and re-energize it and drive out all lies that we have inherited from this fallen world that tell us otherwise and set your people free, set the captives free, held in bondage to lies, that we could leave this service or wherever our parishioners are listening, that they could, when they get done with this, they would have a much clearer understanding of what it means to be in the image of God. And they'd sense that, and they'd walk in that. And your character would shine through them. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, and all of God's image of God bearers said, Amen, Amen, Amen. So what does this mean, made in the image of God? I think when people usually ask that question, the way we tend to answer is we just ask, what's unique about human beings? And we think that that must be what the image of God is. And so some people would say that to be the image of God means that we, we are able to reason. We have reasoning capacity. Uh, some would say that it refers to the fact that we can speak or that we have a capacity for relationships. Or others would say it's because we, we have a soul or that we're composed of body, soul, and spirit. And that kind of uh, mirrors the triune God. And I think there's some truth in those suggestions. But... If you want to know what the author meant by image of God, there's only one way to find that out, and that is to look at how the term, how that concept was used in its cultural context. The meaning of any word or of any concept is the the usage it had in its original environment, right? And so the only way to find out what that word meant is to look at how it was used in that culture and in the surrounding cultures. As I said last week, we've we've, uh, discovered quite a bit of literature on the ancient Near East, from the various cultures that surround the Israelites. And so we've learned something about how this word was used, how this concept uh, functioned in this culture. And so I, I want to look at that here this morning. And I think some of you are going to find it, I think most of us are going to find it quite eye-opening. The idea of being made in the image of God or image of a God really had two applications in the ancient Near Eastern word, world. The first had to do with um, uh, sacred statues, they would call an image of God a statue that they believed enshrined a deity. And all the ancient Near Eastern people, except for the Hebrews, believed that deities were enshrined. Uh, they literally dwelt in a certain statue that was dedicated to them. Now, they, they believed that the God still existed up there and, and wasn't reducible down to the statue, but that, uh, in some sense, the presence of that deity was in that statue. Um, the process by which they went about creating these statues is interesting. And here the details are important, so stay tuned in on this, all right? Um, the, the sculptor, before he would make the statue, would consecrate himself to the God in whose image this statue was to be. And their belief was that the, 
the god would personally then direct the sculptor on crafting a statue that would capture key attributes of that deity. And so in a sense, the deity was carving out their own statue through this sculptor. The sculptor was seen as being the, the hands and the eyes of this deity. And the process uh, of, of then inviting the deity into the statue once it was created, well, it was quite elaborate. It lasted sometimes like seven days. Um, they would, in this period, take the statue down to a river several times and wash it and, and, and purify it to make it an appropriate a habitation for the deity. They would several times during this period uh, take the statue to a garden or an orchard and consecrate it to the deity. And the rationale for that is this. Uh, throughout the ancient Near East, rivers and gardens were associated with the habitation of the gods. That's how they envisioned uh, the, the, the heavenly realm. And so they wanted the habitation of the deity here on earth to resemble that as close as possible. So rivers and, and uh, 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 gardens were closely associated with the temple where the god would dwell. They're were, they were sacred things. Keep that in mind. Um, so they would wash the deity and then consecrate the deity. And then the process would culminate when, um, and this is, some scholars refer to this as the mouth-washing ceremony. The high priest would wash the mouth and sometimes the nose of the statue and then do a little ritual around it. And the belief was that the, at this point, the deity would come down and breathe into the statue, through the mouth and nose, breathe his spirit into that statue. And now the statue would be called the image of God. The purpose of the statue was to represent on a physical level the deity who is otherwise spirit. Uh, invisible. This was a physical representation of the deity, and the purpose was to convey key attributes of this deity on earth. And then when they were, were done with the whole thing, when the, this statue became in the image of God, they would then place it in the temple, the house of the God, um, and they would typically have representations of and sometimes actual rivers and gardens in this temple. And so now, now the people believe that the God, whatever their God is that they're worshiping, has made his dwelling here among the people. And then from then on, the, the priests of uh, the, the people would, would feed the deity by offering sacrifices and doing other requisite rituals. Uh, and in exchange, the deity would provide protection for the people and, and things of that sort. So that's how the image of, that's, that's the first way that the image of God concept was used in the ancient Near East. And this is one of the things that I believe the author has in mind when he says that human beings are made in the image of God. In a real sense, we are created as the statues of God. But we'll see here that there's a real important difference in the way the biblical author conveys it. Notice that in... Let's read the account. Genesis chapter 2. He says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground... And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And the temples of those times always faced in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And a river flows out of Eden to water the garden. A couple things here. Um, notice that when it comes to creating human beings... This is the only thing that God created that he didn't just speak into existence. Everything else God just said, and it was. Let there be light, and there's light. Let there be you know, sky, and there's sky. 
But when it comes to the human being, God takes a more involved approach, it seems. Um, the, the, the impression I get is that you know, God here, when it comes to the culminating act of his creation, he's stepping down off of his authoritative fro- throne where he just speaks by fiat and things happen, and now he's going to personally get involved. Similar to the way that we find it in other ancient Eastern cultures. And so he gets down off his throne and he gets on his knees and he's going to personally form this human being out of the dust of the ground. And then, in a way that resembles closely the mouthwashing ther- ceremony of uh, other ancient Eastern people, he breathes the breath of life into this clay statue. And it becomes a living being. It's now in the image of God. We sang earlier, you are the air I breathe. You are the air I breathe. Well, he is. He breathed his breath of life into us. But it's a certain kind of life. This is just, it's not just biological life. He's already spoken biological life into being. This is something of of himself. Understood in this this culture, something of himself is being breathed into us. And uh, then we become in the image of God. And then notice, once we are in the image of God and we have uh, his breath of life in us, then he places the man in the garden where there's a river. This is his temple. In fact, there's a number of indications in the text that um, the, the, the author is conceiving of Eden as being the temple of God. And now God will be, abide in this temple through his image which is the man. In fact, Ezekiel later on refers to Eden as uh, God's first temple, first sanctuary. So this is the temple with the garden, with the rivers. All these things are kind of considered sacred. And so what, the, what this narrative is telling us is that human beings are in the image. We are the physical statue of God. And we're placed in his temple, and we're there to represent on a physical plane his character. Key attributes of this God are to be conveyed through us. That's how this concept was used throughout the ancient Near East. But there is one, actually there's several, but I'll mention one crucial difference. And that is this. When the, when the ancient Near Eastern people believed that the deity came down and breathed into the statue, um, the statue didn't change. The statue was still just a statue. They believed that the God lived there, but the statue didn't, come alive, didn't become alive. Whereas this author says that when God got down on his knees and fashioned human beings and then tenderly breathed the breath of life into our nostrils, uh, the man became a living being. A living being. And here's why this is so important. Have you ever noticed how often the Bible speaks about the living God? Find that phrase all over the place. Like in Deuteronomy 5. The the author here says, uh, For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God? Speaking out of fire. The living God. You find it over and over and over and over again. I remember as a young Christian reading the Bible for the first time, I would come to that, that expression and I thought, that sounds like a, it's redundant. The living God. Of course God's alive. Why do you have to say the living God? Is, is there a dead God around? Uh, well, it turns out there's a lot of them. I was right. The, the, the Hebrews were always passionate about contrasting the living God with all those dead gods out there, those gods that they think abide in those statues, those idols, those lifeless idols. Uh, the living God, well, the God is alive. And see, this is why a statue could never be in the image of the living God, because the statue is dead. 
And the whole purpose of the image is to convey key attributes of the deity. So any statue that doesn't, isn't alive can't convey that God is alive, and so it doesn't work. In fact, in, in, in the second of the Ten Commandments, when the Lord says, you shall not have any brazen uh, 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 images before me. Don't make any images of me. The rationale there is this. Don't make any images of me because I've already got a bunch. It's you guys. <laughs> and those statues can't be images of me because they're not alive and I am. And so God here creates uh, beings that are in his image and therefore who are genuinely alive. You see, this can't possibly represent God. That's an example of an ancient Near Eastern uh, statue. They thought that God lived in that. But see, it's dead. It doesn't move. But look at this guy for 3,000 years and he hasn't moved. It's just, he's, he's got those deer in the headlight looks. Just look it up, staring in his face, pointing at something, who knows? Holding that staff. You can't have a conversation with, with this, 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 you know, you can't play chess with this statue. You can't dance with the statue. Uh, not that I've tried, but I'm assuming you can't. You, know, you can't, you can't do any kind of relating thing with this statue because it's just a statue. And so the God that it represents is a dead God. A frozen God, at least, you know. No, that, that can't represent the living God. This represents the living God. This is in the image of the living God. Amen. You see, these kids are alive, and the, therefore they convey the living God. God wanted, in his temple, he wanted to abide here through his images, through people who are in his likeness. He wanted an image that could capture the truth that he is a God who is alive, could capture the truth that he's a God who is capable of love. He wants, a, he wants to represent physical representatives who, ha, who can convey that he has the capacity to relate, he, to, that can convey his faithfulness, that can convey his commitment, that can convey his capacity uh, for joy as well as for sorrow. Because that's what it is to be alive. That can convey his capacity uh, for satisfaction, but also for disappointment. Who can convey his capacity uh, for adventure and for humor and for play and for singing. Uh, all that is, represents life. He needs beings who bear his image who can convey that. Dead statues can't, but you can. You see, because you are in the image of the living God, the God who is alive. And see, this is why God wants us to be fully alive. Part of our, 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 our key function is to be fully alive. When Jesus comes and he says, I've come that you might have life and, and have it more abundantly or have it to the full. When he says that, it's not just for our sake. Though it is for our sake because we're supposed to be fully alive. But see, this is also for God's sake. For God's sake. Because God has created us in his image and we're to put on display his life and he is fully alive. He's abundantly alive. And that's the kind of life he breathed into us. That's the kind of life we're supposed to have. And that's the way that we represent God here on earth. I like what a second century theologian named Irenaeus said. He said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Second century. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. Because you're putting on display. The more fully alive you are, the more you put on display the truth about who God is, the more people can see the life of God in you. You see, it, that's the life of God. Someone told me that after the last service, I didn't know this, but the word enthusiasm comes from en and theos combined. And, and it, it literally means God indwelling, enthusiasm, en theos. And so that passion, that enthusiasm manifests the truth that the life of God abides in us. And this is what sets us apart. This is what makes us in the image of God. Now let's break this down a little bit. What does it mean to be in the image of a God who's fully alive? Well, for one thing, you might have noticed in the Bible that God doesn't sit on the sidelines very much. He doesn't just sort of watch things unfold. 
Uh, he never is a God who just is okay with adopting a sort of lazy, mediocre, uh, go halfway sort of mindset. Rather, the God of the Bible, whenever God gets involved in something, he really gets involved in it. He pours himself into it. He does it with passion. And so, see, we are made in the image of the passionate, fully invested God. This isn't a watch-the-world-go-by sort of God, and this isn't a settle-for-mediocrity God. This is a God who's passionately involved in whatever he does, and we are made in that image. And so it means that, that uh, we're created to pour ourselves into things. It means that we should never treat life like a spectator sport. We should never treat li- life like, like we're in the stands watching. We should never treat life like just the many backseat drivers that are out there, where they're okay having other people do things, and they have opinions about everything, but they never actually do anything. You know, it's, it, no, no, we're creating the image of the God who calls us and, in, and breathes into us a life that wants to be invested in things. Um, the reality is, folks, we're going to be dead pretty soon. Yeah, you knew that. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but we're going to be dead pretty soon. And then we've got eternity to coast, although I think we'll have fun and joyful jobs even in eternity. But, but uh, this is the time where we're to be alive. As long as you have breath to breathe, get in the game. As long as you have breath to breathe, invest yourself in something. Uh, if you're not feeling called to any particular thing, well then, just find something good to do and do it and pour yourself into it. Maybe it's the children's ministry this summer. Pour yourself into it with all that you've got. And in doing that, I don't care if it's cleaning toilets and scrubbing sinks and, and, and wiping boogers off the bottom of chairs. It doesn't matter. If you're into it, you're mirroring God. You're modeling God. That's what you're created to do. Put on display what it is to be fully invested in stuff. Get passionate about it. Pour yourself into it. Don't settle for mediocrity. And uh, uh, then people can see the life of God in you. Even when you have physical challenges. You see, it's not the time to check out. No, as long as you've got breath, whatever you can do, do. I remember my father, um, after he had this massive stroke and it just incapacitated him. He was already mostly blind and mostly deaf. And now, and now his face was twisted and he could hardly talk. Um, but he had been a believer for now a couple of years. And so he's in this situation. And um, I, I just said, Dad, now that you're in this condition, I have a very important job for you to do if you'll accept it. And that is, you know, you're going to have a lot of time on your hands. Uh, and so would you use that covering me and our family and the church in prayer? Will you be my prayer warrior? And uh, it's all he could do. His body now just could But he could still do this. In fact, even that, he asked me this. It's just so adorable. This man who used to be you know, so smart and so arrogant and curmudgeon and complaining all the time. Now, you know, the Christ had changed him. And uh, he, was, he had this childlike innocence to him. <laughs> and he asked this question. Um, he goes, well, son, it's kind of hard for me to talk. So do you think God will understand if I just think the prayers to him? <laughs> and I, said, I, I started weeping. I said, Dad, those, those, those count. Those are, he knows your thoughts. Just think the prayers to him and it'll be okay. If, if you've got nothing in your body that works, you can still think prayers to God. And invest yourself in that and do it with all your might. In fact, that's a very, very important job description. Amen. Amen. God isn't a sit-on-the-sidelines God. He's a God who's fully invested. And we are made in the image of the fully invested God. Image that. Image that by how we live. Another thing about God you might have noticed is that he never lets fear get in the way of embarking on a new endeavor. He's a living God, and life is all about overcoming fears and embarking on new endeavors, new adventures. There's always a newness there that we're supposed to be exploring. So we're created in the image of the fearless, adventurous God, 
Our job is to image that, fearless, adventurous God. It means we are to be a people who never let fear stop us from doing something that we think we're supposed to do, or that we can do, that's good to do. Don't let fear uh, stop us from, from, from doing that. Now, maybe you might say, well, gosh, it's easy for God to say that because God never fails. He never has to experience the pain of failure. And if you're thinking that, my response to you is, read your Bible. Because <laughs> you read your Bible... Uh, you find God's plans always involve others, angels and humans, and we screw up all over the place. And those plans often don't come to pass. That's why you find in the Bible, God frequently is frustrated. He's frequently frustrated. He's disappointed. He gets exasperated. He gets hurt. His heart gets broken. He, gets, he takes hits. Big hits. He gets himself crucified. <laughs> you see? So this isn't the guy who just says, do what I say, not what I do. No, he does it. He does it. He gets in the game and he takes hits. But see... As, this, as the crucifixion makes so clear, he doesn't stay down. He gets up again. He's the resurrection God. He's the get back in the game God. All right? He's the say, never say quit God. If one plan doesn't work, he always tries another. And if that doesn't work, he tries another. Uh, when he takes a hit, he, he stands up and he dusts himself off and he, he keeps on going on. We are made in the image of that God. Made in the image of that God. Now, I, I know life can be brutal. Believe me. I, truth is, sometimes you get the living crap knocked out of you. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Life can deal you stuff that you never imagined. You can take hits you never imagined you'd take. It can be brutal. And because we're not God, there is an appropriate time to to rest. There's a time to mend, time to heal. Uh, There's a time, time to let others do the work and let them carry you. When you're too tired to hold your hands up in prayer, have others hold your hands up for you. There's a time for that. Um... But see, because we're made in the image of the living God, that shouldn't be our stopping point. The purpose for being mended is to get back in the game. In fact, getting back in the game is usually part of the healing process. Even when you're still limping, get back in the game. Even when you still have a little bit of that pain, get back in the game. Don't get too comfortable on the hospital bed to the point where it becomes you're, you're, you're a couch potato. No, that's not life. You're created as long as you have breath. Get back in the game. You get pulsed one round, bandage it up, and get back in the ring. You strike out one inning, well, don't play victim mode. Get back in the next inning and take a swing. And if you strike out that time, get back the next inning and take a swing. As long as you've got breath, get back in the game because you're in the image of the get back in the game God. A God who doesn't let defeat be the last word. He doesn't let death be the last word. doesn't let wounds be the last word. In fact, if we're yielded to him and surrender to him, he'll use those to our advantage. And so get back in the game. Be in the image of God. Manifest the fullness of life. We are made in the image of the adventuresome. Uh, get back in the game, God. Manifest that. Imitate that. Image that. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. One more thing. And as this, when Moses spoke to the Lord out of the burning bush, and he asked him his name, the Lord replied, um, In the Septuagint, they translate that, I am that I am. Jesus later on says that the living God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Why? Because he's the living God. What he's saying is that the living God is the God of the present, not the past, not the future, the God of the present. Because, folks, life is always in the present because the present is the only thing that's real. The past is dead. And you can tell because it looks like that statue. It doesn't move. It's, it's, it's frozen. can't change it. it, it it's dead. Uh, the future is just possibilities. The present is what is real. And so... The present is what is real. The present is where life is at. So the the present is where the living God is at. And we are made in the image of that God. We are made in the image of the ever-present God. Which means we should be a people who are invested in the present. 
awake to the present, alive in the present, appreciating the present. It's, it's really good to remember the good times. Yes, savor those nice good times, but don't live there. Thank God for the good of the past, but don't live in the past. Because you're in the present, and that's where life is, and that's where God is. Far more important than remembering the good of the past, which is important, but far more important is to wake up to the good of the now and give thanks for all that is good now. Open your eyes, be awake, and be appreciative of all that is in the now, because now is where the reality is, now is where life is, and now is where God is, so now is where we're supposed to be. And it's good to learn from the past, your past mistakes. Look at those mistakes and learn from them, but don't live there. And certainly don't keep on grieving over that. God, God doesn't live in regret, and we're made as an image, so we shouldn't live in that regret. We made mistakes, made failures, maybe hurt people, and we got hurt. It is what it is. You surrender to God, trust that he'll bring some good out of it, learn from it, but now move on. And, 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 and so don't be living in regret, trying to pay for your own sins. That's a life sucker. That's not a life giver. There's no life in that. And that's why you don't see it manifested in God. That will drain the life right out of you. No, you, you, sometimes you just got to surrender to Calvary, be covered by God's grace, trust his wisdom to bring good out of it, and move on. And it's, it's, it's okay and necessary to plan for the future. We all do that. Amen? Amen? Yes? No regrets! And it's good to plan for the future. Uh, that's, that's necessary, but don't live there. Because you're not in the future. You're here, in the present. And that's where everything is. That's where God is. That's where reality is. That's where, that's where life is. To be fully alive is to be in the present. And so, so don't obsess about the future. Don't be overly anxious and worried about the future. You know, worry is just experiencing the pain of worst-case scenarios ahead of time. Why rush it, right? Why rush it? It was in a hurry. It's all it is. And, and, and so Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. you got enough troubles today. So be in the present. That's where the real troubles are and deal with the, deal with the issues of the now. And then he says, which of you, by worrying about the future, can add you know, one inch to your height or one hair to your head or one day to your life? Worrying about the future may subtract days from your life, but it will never add days. And it may cause you to lose more hair, but it's not going to gain you any hair. I don't know if it shrinks you or not, but uh, you get my point. So the thing is, the present is where the reality is. It's where God is. And so we're to be a people who live in the present. We'll be dead pretty soon. So let's just live in this present. Now is the time to put on display the, the, the key attributes of God, that he's alive, that he's passionate, that he's fully invested in what he does. Now is the time to put on display. The, the truth that he's a get back in the game God. He's a never let death be the, the last word or defeat be the last word. He's a God who's in the present. So now is the time to love, put on display his love. Now is the time to put on his Christ-like character. Now is the time to put on his cross-like character. Now is the time to care about all he cares about. Now is the time to serve the poor, to feed the hungry, to house the homeless, to clothe the naked, to visit the, those who are in prison. Now is the time to show people the love of God and demonstrate in every way we can and to do it with passion. And fervor, with enthusiasm. With enthusiasm, because that's what puts on display the fact that God is in this. That mirrors God. We are created in a glorious image of a God who's fully present, fully awake, fully invested, never quits. Our job is to image that. Now, that's the first way that the image of God was used. Here's the second way. They would, beyond referring to statues as the image of God, they would apply this to kings, and in the case of Egypt, to Pharaoh. The ruler of the land was in the image of God. And the reason was, they, they believed that the God, whoever the, the God of this nation or culture was, that that God had personally appointed the king or the pharaoh, usually by helping him defeat rivals. So God had appointed this king. 
Um, and his job was then to carry out the rule of that God, to make sure that the God's will was done. He had the authority to do that. And so he was called, in the image of God, he represented the rulership of the God in question. And um, in the ancient Eastern world, see, this was the highest honor you could possibly give somebody, to say that they're in the image of God. And it was given to one person. And that was the king or the pharaoh. The highest honor. And um, uh, in the ancient Eastern world, they, they, that image of God concept was so, it, had, it carried such weight that what you did to the statue or what you did to the king was considered being done to God. God kind of took it personally. And so they showed tremendous respect for the king and the pharaoh. Uh, in fact, it went beyond respect. Sometimes it bordered, in the case of Egypt, on worship. Um, and so when, when the king or the pharaoh would come around, they, the people would bow to the ground. But, and they didn't just bow because they were afraid of what would happen if they didn't. And they weren't just bowing to feed the king or the pharaoh's pathetic ego. They were bowing out of respect for the God in whose image this person was. Now, what is just mind-boggling to me is the way this author, I mean, there's nothing like this in the ancient Eastern world, that this author applies this concept to everyone. Humankind are made in the image of God. And to say that, he's saying humankind, every single one of them, are kings and queens. Humankind is bearing his image, has that glory. So it says this in, in, in verse 28, God blessed them, the man and the woman, and said, be fruitful and multiply. Probably the one command of the Bible that human beings have actually fulfilled. <laughs> and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over, see this is royalty language, right? Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Have dominion and subdue. This is royalty language. And this is part of our being made in the image of God. And he applies it absolutely to everybody. Now, here's the thing. That means that there's a responsibility that comes with this. Uh, being made in the image of God means that we're to care for everything in his temple. We're to rule in everything in his temple. And to rule in a way that reflects his character. That puts on display his character. And so we're given, we're entrusted with taking care of the earth and the animals. Uh, all that is inside of his temple, that is our job to do. And this is something we find throughout the Bible. It says, for example, in, in, in Hebrews uh, 2, uh, it says, You have made them a little lower than the angels, talking about human beings, and have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. And so here we are, crowned with glory and honor. Uh, everything's subjected to us, and we have responsibility for all that, because we are the kings and queens of this planet. And we're to do it under the authority of the king of all kings. Right? And the Lord of all lords. So it means, folks, this, that, that we are a people that need to take responsibility for this. In our culture, and we've made some p- progress on this, I think, partly because we're seeing that uh, the way we're treating the earth is, is going to backfire on us pretty quick. And so there's a, there's a growing awareness of the need for this. But it still is the case in our culture, is it not, that when it comes to treating the earth and animals and using the earth and animals, most people think in terms of convenience. Do I like it? Can I afford it? Is it cheap? And is it easy? And if the answer is yes, we just do it. Without any kind of thought of what implications it might have to the earth and to the animals. If we bear the image of God and we do, then that means that we've got to ask other sorts of questions like, is this reflecting God's character? Is the way that I use energy, use the earth, is the way that I treat animals, uh, is it consistent with the character of God? The author of Hebrews says that we're crowned with glory and honor, right? And everything's subjected to us. 
And, and part of what that means is this, that the way that we are to rule is to be glorious and honorable, which means the way that we're to rule is to bring glory to God and to honor God. And so we've got to ask the question, how does, our, how does my lifestyle and how do, how do my food choices impact the earth of the animal kingdom? Um, if you're a meat eater, ask the question, what did you put animals through to get on your plate? And just know that there are options there. And, and we have a responsibility to, to learn of this stuff. Um, and I've talked to people who say, oh, I don't want to learn about it. I don't want to Google that because I might, you know, find stuff that makes me feel guilty for buying the food I buy and eating the food I eat. Well, maybe you're supposed to feel guilty. Uh, it's like, well, if you get convicted, you get convicted. You know, and, and that's not about whether you eat meat or not. It's about where you get it from. And there are free-range farms out there where animals live natural lives. Uh, and, and so just consider that. And this isn't a liberal thing. It's not a new age tree hugging thing. You know, it's not a mamsy pamsy, you know, green thing. I've been called all these things. This is not a democratic policy thing. This is the Bible thing. It's right there. This is a mandate. It's a fundamental kingdom thing. Take responsibility for how you're impacting. Yes, the earth and the animal kingdom. And, um, uh, just Google treatment of animals, industrial farms and, and, and learn. And it may be a little inconvenient. You got to drive further. You got to spend a little more. Got that. But is that really a serious consideration for kingdom people? We're supposed to be willing to bleed and to be inconvenienced. But there's also this final thing about what this means to be made in the image of God in terms of rule. And it's the most amazing thing here. All human beings, he says, qualify for this. No if, ands, or buts, no other conditions, no, no, all humankind are in the image of God. And then he specifically mentions male and female. As I mentioned last week, male and female. Now, folks, that is one of the ways you know the Bible, this is inspired, is because no one at the time and hardly anyone ever since has said stuff like this. In the ancient Near Eastern world where this author is writing, in fact, throughout the Old Testament, in fact, throughout most of history, women were not considered equal to men in any respect. Uh, women were regarded as subhuman, inferior to men. Women were regarded as the property of men, to be used by men and exploited by men and bought and sold and traded by men. That's been the norm throughout history. And we've made a lot of progress on that front in Western culture the last hundred years. But still, I mean, we haven't, we haven't caught up to this, this thousands of years old passage. We still haven't caught up to it. I mean, women make uh, uh, 25% less. Uh, still, for doing the exact same job that a man does. What is wrong with this picture? And less than 5% of, of, of uh, the major companies in America are, um, in fact, around the world, have uh, women as CEOs. And that is actually double what it was in 2011. So we're making progress, but it's still really pathetic. And we still have massive exploitation of women going on all over the place, objectified as sexual objects for men's gratification all over the place. And we have, uh, throughout the church, it's a fraction of churches that would even consider having a senior pastor, a, 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 a woman as a senior pastor, or as an executive pastor. A fraction of churches have uh, female senior pastors and executive pastors. And many churches still, to this day, have a policy against it. Many churches, women can't even vote. They're not supposed to have any kind of leadership role. This passage says, in the image of God, male and female, equally they were made. And so, women, I want to just say this word to you here. Um, look, at when you hear voices in the culture or in the church, coming from anywhere, that says, 
Uh, no, this is, this is a man's world. You know, this is, you can go here, but you can't go here. You can go this high, but no higher. Uh, this is your place. Your proper place is right there. When, what those voices are doing is they're trying to move you in the direction of a lifeless statue, staring off into space with the deer in the headlights look. Uh, it's trying to suck the image of God out of you. It's like God breathes the breath of life into us, and now life comes along and tries to pound the breath out of us. They're trying to take your breath away. Oh, that's what I should have titled the sermon. Don't let anyone take your breath away. That's God's breath. That's God's breath. <laughs> yes. You are not a lifeless statue. You are breathing the breath of God, and you are in the image of God. And so when you hear those voices, you just remind yourself, you are in the image of God. You look more like God than, as much like God as anyone else does. Uh, you are crowned with glory and honor. Uh, all things are subject, subjected to your feet. You are a queen in the temple of God, and you've got a role to do. And, and, and your job is to manifest the character of God as that image. So whatever, whatever you feel called to do, whatever you feel called to be, do it. Go for it with passion and gusto and seize it. And don't give in to those voices that are trying to suck the life out of you and take your breath away. No, you breathe that breath of life. You are in the image of God. You go after that and don't let fear uh, or intimidation ever back you down. And don't do it because you're fighting for your rights or you got an ego need to meet. Because we die to our rights when we come to Christ, and we don't expect the culture to meet our ego needs. Do it for God's sake. For God's sakes, ladies. Get up in the game. Because if you're acting like a lifeless statue and letting people take your breath away, it's insulting to God. Right? It's insulting to God. That, to the, that degree, you're not manifesting the fullness of life. Be fully alive and be passionate and go for it. No ifs, ands, or buts. And now you're putting on a display the beautiful... Uh, character of God, crowned with glory and honor. It's a, it's a woman fully alive, not letting anyone trample on her. Oh, that's, and, you know, and this applies to everybody who is in any cultural context having people take their breath away. That breath of God. Uh, it, it, trying to turn you into a lifeless statue. Uh, trying to dehumanize you, to non-person you. Uh, when you hear voices in the culture or in the church or in the world that tell you, that black lives don't matter as much as white lives. Whether they're t- saying that or whether they're just saying it by doing it, uh, you, know, you say no to that. And, and when you have those voices that say, well, you're a this and you're a that. And, and in the ancient Eastern world and throughout the Old Testament and throughout most of history, cultures have always looked at others who look different from them as inferior. That's been kind of the norm. Uh, uh, there's something subhuman about them. In some cultures, they even see outsiders as evil. There's always been this phobia of those who aren't quite like us, and that continues very much to this day. So when you hear voices that try to marginalize you, that try to say, you belong here, not there, you can go this high, no other, here's where you belong, and we can treat you like this and get away with it, and so on and so on, you remind yourself that you are in the image of God, that that no one looks more like God than you do, you are crowned with glory and honor, uh, that, that all things are subjected to you, you are a king and the queen in God's temple, and you are made in the image of the fully alive God. And so you have an obligation to yourself and to others, and especially to God, to manifest that. And say no to those voices, and purge your lives from any of the influence that they might have in you. And to uh, sear into your mind and into your identity the truth about who you are and how, how you were made to be. And to ask the question, what is God calling me to? And you go for it. Whatever the leadership role is, you go for it. Uh, whatever the calling may be, whether it's a lawyer or a preacher or a teacher or a housewife or a mother, if that's what God's calling you to, or an artist, you go for it. And don't let fear or intimidation ever stop you from that. And do it not to get your ego need met or, 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 or to fight for your rights. You do it primarily for God's sake. 
Because Jesus came that you might have life and have it to the full. And for God's sake, we've got to do that. Uh, anything less. To the degree that we're moved in the direction of lifeless statues. To the degree that people take our breath away. To the degree they take the crown off our head. We are insulting God. And we don't want to do that. Be fully alive. And it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. Whether you're black or white. American, Iraqi, male or female. Or confused and in between. It doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter what your status is. It doesn't matter what your talent is. I don't care if you're super brilliant or you're not so brilliant. You are humankind. Therefore, you are in the image of God. Therefore, you are crowned with glory and honor. Therefore, all things are subjective to you. Therefore, you live fully alive and fully awake. And be free! Amen! 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 Animated statues of God could be no higher dignity than that. It's a cool concept, isn't it? I just love it. It's a cool concept. Oh, tell me this isn't God's word. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Okay, uh, image of God bears. You're in the image of the passionate, fully invested, living in the now, never say die, God. A God who is fully alive. Therefore, we are called to be fully alive. Uh, no ifs, friends, or bets. Wherever you are, whatever your situation is, this call is on you. Find something good to do. Pour yourself into it. And do it now because you're going to be dead pretty soon. This is the time. Live in the present, not the past or the future. This is it. This is it. This is all we got. Let's do it. Let's do it. Huh? Let's grab it. For God's sake, let's be fully alive. Amen. Would you stand? I want to uh, close in prayer that the Holy Spirit seals this on us. Because we're, we're about to walk out into a world where you get all those other voices coming at us. And we've already been polluted with that. We've got to de-pollute, detox from all the lies. Put our crown back on. Take a deep breath, the breath of life. He is the air we breathe. And, uh, and so I pray the Holy Spirit seals this so we don't forget. We remember who we are. I'd like the prayer teams to come up here. And if, if you have, are here and have any need whatsoever, come up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. And if you want to find out uh, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to come up here and talk to these folks. And they'll help you get started with that. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for making us in your image, to, for, for putting this crown of glory and honor on our head. Uh, thank you, Lord God, for uh, breathing your breath of life in us. And now, Holy Spirit, will you be always reminding us that we have in us the spirit of that God, uh, the, the more than a conquering God, the, the never give up God, the get back in the game God, the resurrection God, the fully invested God, the passionate God. And may we glorify him by how we put that key attribute of his on display, that people may see the fullness of life, the enthusiasm of God in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of the crowned image bearers said, Amen, Amen. amen. Go out. Represent God to the world.